The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. A few short years ago, a fellow looking for some good butter for a baguette noticed something odd. Although we were a dairy country, if you went to the supermarket and wanted a fancy butter, the option came in a blue pack all the way from Denmark. Why and what on earth? This thought led Peter Cullinane to try to make his own top shelf butter and to then found and grow Lewis Road Creamery, beautifully made, indulgent and to be savoured dairy. It's been quite a ride, with tales of security guards protecting their Whitaker's chocolate milk collaboration, sold out ranges, copycat milks and expansions into bread, ice cream and non-dairy milks to name a few. Lewis Road Creamery is a huge success and part of that may be that it wasn't Peter's first rodeo. He's an ad man who ran Saatchi and Saatchi in New Zealand and Australia and then worked for them in a big role in New York. On coming home, he co-founded Assignment Group, who've always let the work talk for itself, launching Hyundai here and helping Whitakers reach their most loved brand position. And he also co-founded Antipodes, the beautiful water in the elegant German bottle. To talk selling dairy to dairy farmers, making ideas into business and taking ideas to action, Peter Cullinane joins us now. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, pleasure, Simon. Hey, let's go right back to the beginning of the career in advertising. What attracted you to advertising? Um, I started in, in, the, in, in a time when, when advertising was still sort of reaching its peak, actually. Um, and it, it was purely like it was sort of a family thing. I just happened to know someone who knew someone and, and, and I fell into it. Uh, and, and it was just one of those, I loved it. You know, I loved it. Um, and it sort of just got me off to a rocking start. Um, and I loved being surrounded by people who were really um, highly imaginative and highly energised and lots of fun to be with. And it was just like a, uh, just a sort of rock and roll from, from, from the first minute. And was it rock and roll? Because we have these kind of like, we look back at the glory days of like the, the 70s, 80s and 90s with long lunches and with the kind of um, the primacy of media where, you know, you make one ad and one billboard and put one thing in the Herald and the entire entirety of Auckland would have seen it. Uh, and that, that's all changed. But when it was like that, was it was it lots of fun? It was, it was exactly like that. And um, it was also back in those days, so this is, this is before... You know the the the, the first long e government basically. So in those days, it was a very protected industry, uh, and and actually generated a lot of money. And so the 
it was able to do things uh, really well and look after people really well. And and the the power of advertising those days was I think uh, much greater than it than it is now. So yes, you could achieve a lot, and you could achieve a lot, frankly, in a morning. Um, <laughs> I still I still you know those long lunches um, they're just true. Um, but actually, I don't think we ever had an unproductive lunch. I think you know most of the great ideas were were, were always held you know while, while you're chatting over lunch, and so we had. You know, over the years, you'd have your favourite restaurants and your favourite tables and your favourite thises and your favourites that. And it was all sort of part of the ritual of, of, uh, of you know, of getting to great ideas. So a hugely, hugely entertaining and sort of um, rewarding time. And some of those, uh, you know, like because advertising had such primacy in the, the media landscape, you know, some of those campaigns and those things like for, for telecom and the like and spot the dog, yep. they're always going to be part of the fabric of the country as well. But what's it like to work on projects like that? Um, I think it's a huge privilege, and I don't think actually anyone else is going to have the sort of privileges that we had. It was just one of those sort of times, and you know that that, that those things happened. Um, and I think the work, some of the work, was absolutely fabulous. And I think um, we did a lot of it. Uh, Colenso did a lot of it, um, and and the sort of the, the rivalry side between the between the agencies and in those days was was intense and friendly. Um, and I think what I enjoy though most was just the people I worked with and so um, two of my sort of oldest and dearest colleagues Kim Thorpe and Howard Grieve were all part of that journey um, and went on you know when we started assignment group later as did James Hall so we so we were surrounded by you know just the pick of the best people um, and doing great work and clients who were who were you know loved what we did and we loved working with them it was just it was a it was a terrific period what was it like popping out of that New Zealand environment, because uh, you ended up running the New Zealand and Australian Saatchi operations, uh, to then go out to New York and the big world of advertising? What, what was similar and what was different? The, um, so we, we were in, uh, we had a wonderful time, you know, personally, we were in, in New York, you know, the, at the, in, the, in the late 90s and, and just at the, at, at the turn. Uh, and so our time in New York was when Clinton was in ascendancy, and I think America was at you know at its finest. So we had a we had a brilliant time. Um, advertising in New York by then had just started to lose its gloss, I think, and so it wasn't nearly as advanced um, as we were here. You know, the, the thing about New Zealand is you can do because it's such a small country, and because there are so few of us, we seem to be able to sort of do things quickly and inventively and and um, and a scale that for, for our size is, is extraordinary. Um, that wasn't the case so much in, in in New York. I spent a lot of time in other markets, however, um, including UK and again, you know, Saatchi's and Charlotte Street, you know, was rightly famous as one of the great, great, great sort of, you know, homes of advertising. So um, I spent, in those years, I spent most of my time on a plane really, um, you know, travelling from country to country to country. So I had a, you know, personally, it was a, it was a, um, it was a brilliant time of my uh, of my career. Then you came home and set up assignment group with the others, uh, as you mentioned there. And I, I think, would it be fair to say that outside of Adland, where you guys are, you're totally revered for the work that you did, you may not have the. Um, person on the street recognition of a Saatchi and Saatchi or a Clemenger or a Colenso or whatever. But you know, look at the, the work that you guys have produced um, with uh, Hyundai launching it into the country and, and Whitaker's. The assignment model um, that we had envisaged is, I think, the way our industry is sort of heading. Uh, when I say our industry, you know, the, 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 the advertising communications industry. Um, and I think it was... Um, 
basically at a time when there was that big shift from big media to social media and so on and so forth, and just being able to be um, much more fleet of foot and and much less um, connected to main media was really important. So you could make decisions that were based on you know what was the best thing to do as opposed to you know where could you place your thirty second spot. Mm. And what a change in advertising. I mean, the change from make an idea and it lasts six months and you put the same idea out through six or seven channels to make a hundred ideas for a hundred channels and change them every seven days. And uh, make those ideas at a fraction of the cost um, and, and frankly, a fraction of the return. So I, it's... Yeah, you know, I'm always sort of aware of this, Simon. But but when you when you leave something, rather, it's never quite as glamorous as it was when you were in the middle of it. So I've got to be aware of that. But I actually think that the industry has changed, you know, beyond all recognition, um, and it's just much more difficult to make an impact uh, than it was back in the day. And so the, you know, I think the 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 thing that I always have have always said about advertising is, you know, the the need to communicate. Um, remains a constant. The the way in which we do it um, changes. And I think that advertising and marketing, particularly advertising, is going through an absolute sea change. I think it's actually a, you know, it's probably a decades-long um, change to sort of, to shake out, you know, its future. I think it's still in this in this period of transition. But, but assignment was definitely, you know, and is definitely sort of part of that uh, transition. And it was a fascinating journey because one of the things that... Um, that I found is, you know, as you, well, certainly as I did, as I sort of grew up in in, um, in, a, in a highly resourced um, industry where, where, you know, everything was your beck and call, we were suddenly, you know, there were four of us, James Hall, Kim Thorpe, Hargreave and I, in an in a, in a office not dissimilar um, to this. Um, and, you know, we having to find out where the post office was and so <laughs> how you make a cup of coffee and stuff. So it was a, it was a, it was a fantastic ride uh, and lots of fun. That's so cool. And one of the things that um, has really changed in the world of advertising uh, is that concept that if you guys have, if you as a team have the um, the smarts to make something that people will love and engage with, why not own the product as well as the communication? Did you always have that in your mind that you wanted to own the product and the story? Yes, I did. I did, and I. Um, what I didn't have in my mind though was quite how I would go about doing it, or, 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 or what that product was. But I, but I absolutely, and I think you know we might touch on this later. But I, I absolutely believe that the skills that you develop um, in advertising and marketing, if if you're good at it, um, go well beyond communication, and they do go to. You know the power and value of of imagination, and then how you harness that and turn that into something. Uh, and one of the one of the companies that I have a lot of time for is a company called IDEO, uh, which is you know, an, an idea development company. Um, and I I know little about them except that they have a sort of a Steve Jobs like uh, view of the world, which is as soon as you can sort of this is particularly with products, um, as soon as you can sort of hold something in your hand and get a sense of what it might be like, um, then you're onto something. And I love that idea of thinking beyond communication and thinking, well, what is it that we could create and make? And I do absolutely believe um, that that is the essence of, of success going forward. It's imagining what you can do and then just setting out to do it. Uh, and, and I think the, the scale of that imagination is entirely up to the individual. And what, one of the big changes that 
you know, I see, you know, you see the um, the really successful changes in advertising, like the Nike Plus running app made by RGA or uh, things like that, where the product becomes the brand experience, becomes the communication. And I, you know, I've heard from um, people from like the older days of advertising saying, well, you know, if you did a good enough ad, you could sell anything. You know, the product was not really that important. But now the product has to be uh, the heart of the brand, doesn't it? It almost didn't matter what the product was. If the if the if if the advertising was clever enough, hmm. it sort of dragged the product along with it. Yeah, like, like, uh, like cream egg, for example. Uh, exactly. I mean, <laughs> all that, all that, also. But but now um, now that sort of changed out of out of sight. And I think that that is again the key to the future success of of advertising marketing and, and production you know that that whoever realizes that all of those things have got to come together uh, and work as one uh, you know has the advantage let's look at the first time that you you did that with um, antipodes the first run through kind of commercializing uh, one of your own ideas at, at that kind of large scale what led you to when was it that you and the um, others set up Antipodes, and what led you to want to do a premium water brand in New Zealand? It really it came from um, there was a a, 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 a a friend of ours, Simon Woolley, who who uh, was a restaurateur, and uh, we were in New York at the time. So so Simon um, was sort of part of our of our life in New York, and he 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 made the decision that he was going to live like a student. So so he lived like a student, you know, which is quite tough in New York because mm. he was so. Um, uh, and he was incredibly, uh, and he remains, you know, he's an incredibly sort of generous um, guy, Simon, with his time and helping people and things. And, and we had, um, when we came back to New Zealand, Simon was coming back as well, and we decided um, that we would have a, uh, what can we do for Simon dinner? And, and that sort of evolved into um, a meeting down at our batch in Hatipi and Tapo with um, Simon, Howard Grieve and Kim Thorpe. And we just, we literally sat around for the day and thought, right, what, what product could we create that Simon could be part of? And he's a, you know, he's a foodie, so food was there. Quite late in the afternoon, Simon said, you know, well, one of the things I always noticed at, the, at Metropole, which is, you know, his, his most famous restaurant, um, was, you know, we were serving Pellegrino and it always sort of struck me, why, why are we serving Italian water? What's wrong with our water? And that's actually where, that's where the idea started. So it was Simon's idea. Um, and then I think what appealed to us, you know, to, the, to Howard and Kim and I was, goodness, if we could package New Zealand water and sell that, that would be a real test of our, <laughs> of our ability to package and sell anything. So it was sort of like almost the hardest product in the world to, to take on to begin with. So that's, that's, that's how it started. In a country that has some of the best tap water in the world as well, but you weren't selling it to um, try and replace tap water, were you? You were selling it in the first instance uh, to be a beautiful, um, a beautiful experience at a restaurant. It's it's really interesting. So so it started off absolutely as a as a as a as a restaurant product, and that's really where it's where it's remained. And um, it's a, it's a thing about it's a bit like our dairy story. I mean, we have potentially the best water in the world coming out of a tap, but but we don't necessarily have the best water coming out of the tap. You know, we're great at sort of you know whacking in the chlorination and whacking into this and whacking into that, and just we we don't treat our sort of uh, our core resources very well. So actually, a lot of the water that comes out of the tap is, you know, once you get your sort of palate trained, <laughs> uh, it's pretty ordinary. Um, so we spent, uh, it was a fantastic journey. We spent um, about 
about a year, I think, literally trying to track down a source of water that, that we thought was um, fabulous. And um, that's where Lewis Road starts because we found literally a, 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 a bore on a pretty disused kiwi fruit orchard in Lewis Road and 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 in uh, Otakiri, which is out of Fokatani. Um and we knew that to be um, probably the best water source in the in the country. And and so we bought the the little kiwi fruit farm and started started the whole thing from there. And how do you scale up from uh, a couple of old friends sitting around and talking through an idea? To having a bottling plant, to uh, pr- you know, to, to building all of the all of the elements of a of a of a FMCG kind of business. Yeah, it's pretty haphazard. Um, and but actually, the best story to begin with was um, before we started um, bottling our own water. Um, there was um, a, a, another um, bottling plant uh, that was sort of underutilized that we tapped into. And so we approached them to begin with, um, and asked them to bottle our, our water. It came from the same aquifer. Um, but the big issue to begin with was what bottle was it, was it going to go in? And I can remember absolutely, um, as clear as a bell that the, 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 there were the four of us. So, um, Kim H, um, Simon and I, and, uh, Len Cheeseman, who again was an ex-Archie, mm. Uh, he's probably the best, one of the world's best typographers. Fabulous, fabulous designer. So Simon and I had gone out to um, these various bottle importers and we had, um, sitting on our dining room table um, uh, down here, Simon and I had probably 50 different bottle shapes. And the thing about um, bottled water, apparently, if, if you're, if you're uh, you know, a bottled water aficionado, it should be you know, the usual thing of dark colour and green and this and that and everything else. And so we had um, Kim and H and and Lynn Cheeseman came into the apartment, and we said, "Well, look, here are the bottles that we could that we that we could use." And in the middle was was the now iconic um, bottle, but that was a German medicine bottle, and and actually quite unsuited to <laughs> to water. But it but it was so different, mm. and we took it. Um, I remember we took it down to Solbar um, where we, we were having lunch on that day, and and you know um, showed it to the waitress. Uh, he said, oh, no, it's far too big, and, you know, no, you need something much better. So it was sort of everything against it, but um, but I think it was Len and Kim in particular just said, no, no, that's the one, let's run with that. So that's what we ran with. And the beauty of that is just sort of backing your judgment, uh, and, and, you know, I think they have particularly good judgment, and that's sort of where that bottle shape started. And then the label was, you know, a clear label because we wanted to make it as, as unobtrusive as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at Antipodes now, there's just a black label for, you know, or black type for um, sparkly and, and mm-hmm. white for, for, uh, for still. And then off it went. And then in terms of putting, um, from going from that to actually building a plant and everything else, there was some, there was some really big calls on that. And I think, uh, again, a bit like uh, Lewis wrote, ignorance is bliss. You know, I think there's a, there, there are all sorts of theories about how you start businesses and things, but one of them is, you know, how much you prepared to risk. Uh, and we didn't want to risk a lot, but we, we sort of agreed, well, we'd put some money in each and, and just run at it until we ran out of it. Mm. Uh, and then, you, you know, that's a, it's a great thing to do because it either works or it doesn't. Um, and in our case, it sort of works. So we got, we did start to generate some sales, and then we decided uh, that the only thing we could do is to control our own production. And that's where we built the plant. 
and that was just a big call. Um, the, but by then we had involved our, um, our accountant, a guy called Neville Goldie, who had been uh, head of finance at Sarch. You know, it was part of our sort of whānau, if you like. Um, and it's sort of a small group of shareholders, and, and, then, and then off we went. And I must say, it's, it's hugely um, interesting to build a plant when, you've never, you know, when you had no idea what you were doing. But, um, but we did it, and I think it, it, uh, you know, it served its purpose really well. And set you up so well to then on that fateful day with the baguette. Yes, yes. <laughs> At the supermarket. And yeah, you know, much like it's it's so interesting to think that a place like New Zealand with such premium natural water didn't have a premium water. It's absolutely bananas to think that a country that is so reliant on dairy didn't have premium dairy products. And that was sort of one of the one of the sort of the guiding things behind doing dairy actually at the end of the day was that um, I think as because we're so small, we have this thing about wanting to be big. So everything we do, we want to do at scale. And um, I think we we just sort of tend to look through the wrong end of the telescope a lot. So so yes, we have um, brilliant you know raw resources, um, but we don't treat our dairy with great respect. Um, I think we're terrific at producing you know commodities um, at volume. But that's not what we should be doing. You know, long term, we should be uh, we should be at the other end of the spectrum. We should be producing um, high value um, dairy that, that's as good as we can make it, um, and export it to countries who appreciate what we can produce. And um, you know, our distance is actually a, um, not a barrier; it's a it's an opportunity. But it's just sort of not in our psyche. So one of the things that I found was uh, so I I'm you know my basic. Um, uh, diet uh, and it's been the same right through school <laughs> and ever since really is, is you know white bread and and when I'm really lashing out um, uh, ham on top and it hasn't changed you know, sort of I, I still I still do it every second day but I found that in in um, over, over the years the quality of our butter was was up and down and sideways and one of the reasons for that is when you I don't think they'd now call it that but in the old days if you talk to Fonterra about butter they would refer to it as yellow fat and I just think that's sort of reflective of an attitude that says, you know, there's not a lot of love in that in that in that particular description. So um, because there was so much variability, I switched to Lurpak, which is a Danish butter, and, and that's it's a really good butter, by the way. And then I thought, you know, that that was it. So so the 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 the, the way that actually Lewis Road started was um, on a Sunday afternoon. It was a, it was a I think in the middle of winter. And it was cold and wet and miserable. And I went out to do the the supermarket shopping in our local supermarket was uh, or remains New Welbeck Park. And I was reaching out for the lure pack, putting on the shopping trolley, and I just had one of those moments of you know what, what's a what's a kiwi doing putting a Danish butter in a shopping trolley? And I put the butter back on the shelf and went home and looked up um, YouTube. Um, and uh, and how to make butter and I can remember the video. It was a um, it was a woman in in the Appalachian Mountains sitting in a you know literally sort of in the you know truly sitting sitting in a lazy boy talking talking to camera um, and she was demonstrating how you make it with a, uh, in an AG jar. So you you take an AG jar and you fill it up with a third of cream and then you shake the hell out of it basically and that separates the you know the water molecule from the fat molecules and off you go so I went back to the supermarket and bought um, and bought the cream and um, made my first batch of butter and 
and it could have stopped there, Simon. It's just the, the way these things sort of work, sort of life is so funny. So that evening, it was a Sunday night, we were going out to uh, dinner with a group of friends. Um, and one of the guys is, you know, um, uh, you know, very successful and so on and so forth. And, and, and we were having a chat across the, the dinner table and saying, so what are you up to? And I was saying, oh, yeah, I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm doing something else. I could just see I wasn't lighting his lights. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly, so I said... I don't know why, but I said, oh, I know, I know, I'm going to start a butter company. Um, and he said, oh, well, that's really interesting, but it's not going to be out of the boot of the carpet, is it? And what was sort of hurtful about that, Simon, is my brother had said the same thing about Antivity's Water. He said, oh, yeah, it's good, Pete, but it's like a boot of the car sort of company, isn't it? Which I thought was sort of, so it was like a doubly hurtful. So, so I said, no, 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 it's going, to be, it's going to be the real deal. So, But it was just enough, actually, to think, well, I'm going to do it. So the next morning, purely... You know, just the way these things work. I rang um, New World Vic Park and I asked to speak to the manager. And you see, this would never happen in another country. You know, you could never do that. But in Auckland, you can. So I rang and I got put through the manager who was uh, Jason Woody Hero, who mm. was, you know, one of my absolute really gold star heroes. And I said to Jason, Jason, you don't know me from a, a bar of soap, but my wife keeps your supermarket afloat. <laughs> And that sort of gave me a half an hour of his time. And I said, look, I just have this thing that um, New Zealand should be making a great butter. And if I can figure out a way of making it, will you sell it? And it was as simple as that. And Jason said, if you make it, I'll sell it. So that's how it started. And, and if you follow people around in the supermarket and look at their trolleys, people are obsessed with dairy in this yeah. country. They'll have seven or eight different types of dairy. You know, they'll have a, a cottage cheese, a, an Edom, a brie, a sour cream, a, a milk, yogurt. Ice cream, just in a normal in a normal trolley. And Simon, I we're not responsible for for, for a lot of that, obviously. But I think we are actually responsible for a piece of it. I think um, certainly the cheese um, thing was really starting to go. By the time I you know, I showed any interest in in in, uh, in butter, but 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 butter was absolutely just a, mm. a basic commodity. So a, a baking need. Yeah, um, and you know you always used um, you know butter that was sort of coming near its use by date and baking and so on so, so it's sort of a weird it was just a so um and again I, what i love about new zealand which again couldn't happen i don't think anywhere else but um when we made our first um batch of butter not commercially but you know our first attempt at making it commercially we made it in a in an off-season um, packing plant which had you know food standards etc um, but it was a complete disaster. You know, just everything that went wrong <laughs> could go wrong, including when you make butter, you've got to make it in a chilled environment. So we were making it in this in this packing shed, which is getting quite warm. So we turned on the air conditioning and out, out blew sort of you know, six months' worth of dust and stuff. So it was just it was a complete nightmare. But it was enough to sort of teach us a few lessons. Um, and then I was in... Uh, so I thought, right, well, this... Uh, and then we tried packing it, and it's like trying to wrap chewing gum. You know, you just can't do it. So I thought, right, we're going to have to find a new way of, of, uh, of wrapping this butter when we get around to make it. I was back in New World, and um, Ross McCallum, who uh, was the founder of Carpety um, many years ago, happened to be in the, in, the, in the cheese deli section when I was there. And he said, what are you up to? And I said, I'm trying to find a way to, to, to pack butter. Ross, and I, can't, I, can't, I can't sort of suss it. And then he put me on to someone who put me on to someone and so on and so forth. And the degree of cooperation in, in, um, in dairy, I think, is fabulous, including Fonterra, by the way. Um, you know, sort of they're, they're, they're big and so on and so forth. But um, we've had a lot of help. We've had a lot of help as we've, as we've, as we've grown. 
let's look at some of the kind of milestones of uh, the company. Can we talk about the chocolate milk, which was, it was already a, a hit product. And, and you know, like the, the butter and stuff, um, you know, that was a beautiful artisanal product in a wave of caring about artisanal products. So, you know, that could have that could have just been. But the chocolate milk was kind of a collaboration branding kind of masterclass. It was. Uh, and it was also, again, like so many of these things, you know, there was a lot of luck involved. But I think, you know, that old story, to a degree you create luck, but I think, what we were able to do is uh, is just we we've never taken the hammer off you know we've just we've just sort of kept at it and kept at it and kept at it so we started with with the royal we there weren't many of us um, I think there were two of us to begin with we started with um, butter uh, and then uh, milk and uh, again back to your point about um, you know New Zealand producing the best milks and so on um, actually our milk is is um, it's just the side of being legal, um, you know, we, because we had to permeate, we do all sorts of things to our, to our basic milks to stretch them, which came as a huge surprise to me because I just thought, you know, our milk would be the best in the world. So that's, again, um, just like part of what we set out to do with milk. And, and our original uh, milk, actually, was uh, organic Jersey milk, and we just ran out of Jersey milk within, I think, the first three months. We just couldn't um, get enough. Um, but again, Jersey milk is just the, you know, the, the, the as we say, the creme de la creme of, of drinking milks. But um, that proved to us again that if you produce a really good product, um, people will flock to it and, and they're prepared to pay a premium as long as they're getting what they pay for. You know, the trick is it's got to be value. And so we, we, we started with white milks and that really started to to really change the, the pace of, of Lewis Road. Um, and we wanted to, uh, we wanted a, a bottle that sort of paid homage to milk as it should be, which is why we have that, um, uh, you know, that, the, 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 the bottle that we use. One of the great things when we were launching uh, milk uh, is that um, milk and bread are the two most auto-bought products in a supermarket. So people almost aren't looking. They're just sort of reaching up, you know, just out of the corner of their eye. Just as we were launching our milk, um, Anchor came up with their light-proof bottle, which was, you know, just a gift from heaven for us because uh, it forced everyone to think about the milk they were buying. And so all of a sudden it was, well, I'm going to take this light-proof bottle thing, which I don't really like, or am I going to go, oh, there's a milk bottle as I remember it as a kid bottle. So it gave us an incredible sort of leg up. Um, so we, so then um, I was having lunch with um, Janine and James Draper from Pharaohs, just a, one of those sort of catch-up lunches. Um, and uh, it was James who said, you know what I'd really like? I'd really like a really decent chocolate milk. Could you do that for me? So that's where that idea started. Uh, and... Um, as you mentioned before, you know, assignment group and before that, Sarchi's uh, had, had worked with uh, um, with Whitaker's for, you know, 20 years probably. And so I rang Holly Whitaker, uh, who's sort of the third generation and, and uh, you know, I had a huge amount of time for Holly. And I said, Holly, I've just got this idea about making a, a chocolate milk. Would you be up for it? And again, to her enormous credit, you know, because for them the brand is incredibly important and how it's treated and so on. Um, she was really receptive to it and said, yep, if you can do it, um, we're with you. And so that's where it started. And just one of the lucks of these things, Simon, the, the, the um, GVD, who's our um, bottler, 
only had the capability of adding powder to their milk, um, not liquid. And uh, Whitakers had just introduced this five-roll refined milk chocolate, uh, and that actually uses a, a like almost a talcum-like um, chocolate. So it was it was just one of those magic things where the only chocolate we could get from Whitakers came in powder form. The only um, way that GVD could make flavoured milk was was to take powder. So those two things came together, and it took probably truly no more than 10 days to develop that product because there's not much to it it's chocolate and milk yeah. um, and that you know like off you go um, and then it was just you know as you know it just went nuts after that the going nuts part how much of that was um planned and surprise and how much of it like the security guards for yeah. example was that was that a real thing the, uh, that 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 i think was a real thing it was such a it was such a sort of a um tsunami moment um, the, the, the security guards were there more to control the number of people who were lining up and buying. It was just, you know, it truly was. It was, it was a remarkable period. It was the lead, lead story on the news um, front page yes. of the paper that there was chocolate milk shortages. I mean, were you pinching yourself? Absolutely. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's ever happened um, in food like that. That was just a, you know, a, 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 they call it a black swan moment. Um, but we had no idea. We, you know, we... We had no idea, and nor did um, Whitakers, and nor did GVD. And so the shortages were, um, they weren't, you know, I can, hand on heart, they were not designed. They, they were simply a result of GVD, you know, had a small bottling plant that was simply not geared up for sort of volume demand that, that suddenly just came in. And then Whitakers couldn't supply the amount of chocolate, so it was just a constant um, uh, supply issued for us for, I don't know, it seemed to go on for years. It was probably, you know, six months or, 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 or 12 months. But it was a wonderful, um, it was a wonderful co- collaboration, remains that way. And I think um, I think there's just something about, um, I think as Kiwis we love that sort of stuff too. I think we love, you know, um, little companies working together and things. I think it's very much sort of part of our DNA. And the perfect kind of treat as well. Oh, <laughs> magnificent! <laughs> sure love it. Um, so, so with with the expansion of the brand as well, I, you you and the team have now moved into bread, ice cream, mm. um, non dairy mm. items like cider. What? Like well, cider. We, we're we're launching literally. We're launching that today, um, and that came from. Again, a lot of stuff happens in midwinter for some reason. I just think it's sort of when you know it's when it's cold and dark and miserable. You sort of maybe that's when you're most creative. But um, we were sitting around our. Um, we have a our office is actually not dissimilar to your offices in that they're in uh, an old uh, warehouse in in the middle of in the middle of the city. I must say, but in an old warehouse and the and the building was actually built by L.D. Nathan, uh, who were really the the founders of commercial dairy in New Zealand. Uh, so, so I love sort of being in the building where, you know, so they were, um, they started Glaxo, for example, which has gone on to become, you know, GlaxoSmithKline, one of the biggest sort of, you know, uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, but it all sort of started here. Um, and we have our offices sort of built really as a sort of a grand um, sort of country kitchen. So it's quite quite different to the to the normal office, but we do a lot of our sort of work around the, the kitchen table, and we were having a farewell for someone. we were just sort of talking about um, you know, and like everyone, everyone had had a um, uh, an OE experience in the UK, and we we're talking about cider, and somehow we got onto drinking as, as you do, uh, and cider, and that's 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 sort of where that idea came from. Which is, hang on, 
well, we could probably do something. Um, and if and if we did, what would we do that was different to everyone else? So we've launched a, a, a range of ciders, um, but they have um, um, uh, blossom distillates in them. So um, apple blossom, um, peach blossom and orange blossom. It's just this little something, that, that little something actually just makes them pretty spectacular so anyway um and i think we'll just keep on going with that simon i think that's i, I mean i i love that stuff and I, I find it really energizing and sort of exciting it just goes back to starting with the end product and working back um, rather than working you know logically forward and i think that comes from the the my advertising um experience really which is you've got to make big leaps mm. You know, the the you know an idea can't just be a little step forward. It's got to be a big leap, and the bigger the leap, the better the idea. And that's really what um, we do with products as well. We sort of make a big leap to imagine if we created something like that. And I and I absolutely do. Within sort of nanoseconds, think what would that look like sitting on a shelf? Like, well, can I imagine it sitting on a shelf? Can I imagine someone's hand reaching for it? And if I can, that's sort of where we start. And then, okay, well, what what would we need? To to do to, to, you know, to bring this to reality. There's a bit of a through line there, isn't there, between uh, advertising where you're adding value to other people's products and then uh, all of these products where you're taking our primary uh, sector produce and elevating them by adding some value, some brand, uh, some, some premium pro- uh, methods. So, so there are sort of two, there are two sort of pieces of that. Um, Simon, one is um, it's very easy to tell other people what to do and not and not actually have to take responsibility for whether it works or not. Uh, and the and the downside I think of advertising is, and it's magic is, if it's a truly new idea, you don't know if it's going to work. You know, you you've just got to go out there and try it. And and all the research in the world is not is just not going to tell you that. So, the best thing to do is you know back your judgment. But when you're having other people take the risk, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's a bit easy. You know, it's like, oh, go for it. You know, I'm, I'm sure it will work for you. Um, so it's a huge step to say, actually, we're going to take the, the, the risk. Um, so that's sort of one side of it. But the other side of it is that um, if you've spent, as I have, and as, you know, Kim and H and, and James and, and all these guys that, that I spent so much time with over the years, um, where you are recommending to others that they do something, then clearly it's up to the others to decide whether they do it and how well they do it and how much they embrace the idea and things. And I think that's always quite disappointing when you see a, an idea that could have been great somehow get sort of, you know, whittled down. And I always have this analogy of, of sort of Michelangelo, you know, chipping away at the marble. You've got to know when to stop chipping or otherwise you end up with a statue there you know, that's, that's like two centimetres you know, it's, a, it's perfect, but it's tiny. Uh, so you've, you've sort of got to know when to stop. If you're doing it all yourself, it's entirely up to you. And so you, you become your own client. And I, and I must say that is enormously energising um, because, you know, if you can imagine it, you can do it and off you go. A couple of questions that we like to ask people. Um, you know, what do you wish you'd known earlier? I think I wish I had known how much fun it was doing it yourself rather than doing it for others. And I think that's – but maybe, I don't know, like I never regret that stuff because you think, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have known how to do it well enough and, and it would have been a, a failure. And we've had a few failures, you know, even even now with all this experience, you think, whoa, you know, we got that seriously wrong. Um, but that's an enormous amount of fun. But I do think the thing that I would say is um, – 
there's nothing like starting tomorrow. Uh, and and I think that we are all, it's just human nature. We, you know, we, we can always find a reason not to do things. Uh, and I think the real lesson is, you know, just get out and do it. And the younger you are, and I keep, you know, saying this to, so my boys are, uh, you know, classic millennials, um, is that just get out there and take a risk. And the worst thing is it doesn't work. We'll do something else. Um, and the older you get, the less inclined you are to take a risk. And I think that was, for me, with Lewis Rowe, that was the biggest single risk assignment, which was, you know, so I've built a career of, you know, advising others. What happens if I screw up? You know, that's, that's the end of that career. Um, but that little tightrope thing for me, I love it. And that's what assignment was as well. You know, we sort of took off all our safety nets. Um, and so it's just like walking a, you know, walking a tightrope, which I've never been able to do, by the way. But, you know, if I could, I'd love to be able to do it because I just love the sort of the thrill of that sort of risk. Um, and then you just hope you're going to get a reward for taking it. Ah, that's so magic. Thank you so much for coming to chat to us today. Peter Cullinane of Lewis Road Creamery, uh, Antipodes, co-founder of Assignment, and back to Saatchi and Saatchi in the early advertising days. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. Absolute pleasure, Simon. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Jose Barbosa, for producing, and thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. Brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From The Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.